All right, everybody. It is me and Christian here with our very good buddy, Thomas Rillstone from the History of Oteroa. Did I pronounce it right? That was pretty good, actually. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good? History of New Zealand podcast. And um, so tell us a little bit about your projects and what you've been working on and what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. So kia ora. My name is Thomas and I, as you've just heard, I am the bloke behind the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast, um, which is very much a does what it says on the tin um, podcast. <laughs> um, it's a chronological narrative retelling of the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, um, which by you know my accent and stuff, you probably gather that's where I'm from. Uh, however, um, you've also probably gathered that that is a history podcast, as I've just explained, and you're wondering, what are they doing on this podcast about animals? What's that kind of, <laughs> how's that related? It's all part of the plan, baby. It's all part of the plan. So there is, a, there is a, there is a connection. One of the connections is that New Zealand is a very unique, um, it's a very unique, uh, place in that about 50% of the animals here are endemic, um, or they're not found anywhere else in the world. Um, so that makes it very, very special. And it's sometimes kind of called a biological arc because a lot of our animals are very, um, are very, very old, have been here for a very, very long time and haven't really evolved a hell of a lot and that kind of stuff. And the other part of it is why I specifically am here when I run a history podcast is that although history is kind of a passion and I do really, really enjoy that, um, I actually work in the conservation field. I work in conservation for a living. So my job, a lot of it entails or a lot of it is around um, trying to get rid of introduced mammalian pests, things like rats. Uh, mustelids, which are stoats, weasels, and uh, ferrets, um, as well as possums and hedgehogs and whatever else people decided to bring over to New Zealand that weren't originally here. And they cause a huge amount of devastation to our wildlife, particularly our birds, which is our kind of major, you know, we, we've got a big, a lot of uh, endemic birds and stuff, um, with only two species of endemic mammals, um, which are both bats. So oh. everything else that's a mammal here isn't really meant to be here originally. Um, so we're trying to get rid of them because they cause a huge amount of devastation on all of these really unique birds and stuff. And you've probably heard about all these different birds, things like kia, kakapo. We've got things like tui, uh, kiwi, of course. That's the obvious one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. so we, we talked about the kia in one of our episodes. Christian actually talked about the kia, and that was pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> kia are really strange. All of their animals are really strange. But they get a lot of focus in the sense that, you know, they're cute and they're a bit kind of fluffy and, and nice looking and stuff. But there are things here in New Zealand that don't get a lot of press. Um, one of them being the weta, which is a large uh, insect um, that's also endemic to New Zealand. The weta punga, which is the giant weta, is actually so large that it occupies the same niche as rodents here in New Zealand, which is like wow. kind of insane. <laughs> yeah, so w when you say a niche that an animal occupies, you mean like in terms of the whole ecosystem, like that's the role that it is playing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it, instead of rodents being over here and, you know, they're eating like seeds and, and being eaten by birds and, and that kind of stuff in the terms of like, you know, the food chain and the food web and that kind of stuff, because we don't have rodents here, they slotted into that section, essentially. They 
you know, they sit in that same area as what you'd expect a mouse or a rat to sit in. It's just that it so happens to be a very, very large bug, basically. That's extremely impressive for uh, for a bug. And especially yeah. considering that you, you mentioned that there aren't any native mammals other than bats, right? Because it seems like bats are so far removed from other mammals that I'm I'm really surprised to hear that there aren't like native rodents or native like I don't know not I, I guess you wouldn't expect to find like canids but maybe like felines or something else along those lines. It's just bats. Yeah, yeah, none of that. No snakes. No mammals. No. It's basically just birds, bugs, and reptiles, and that's about it. And fish and stuff. I mean, uh, to, okay, in fairness, we do kind of have native mammals, but they're seals, and so they don't really count, you know? Oh, no okay. native terrestrial oh. mammals, okay? If you want to get really specific. <laughs> so, if you want to get all technical, yeah, okay. Seals are, are native to New Zealand as well, but we don't have any others that are terrestrial, like proper terrestrial, apart from the bats. And the interesting thing about the bats, in fact, as well, is they're the only species of bat that don't feed on the wing. Uh, anywhere in the world um our bats actually will craw- crawl along the ground looking for bugs and stuff um instead oh my gosh um which is yeah very very unique yeah that doesn't seem like they would be uh particularly well suited for that <laughs> yeah it's not really something when you watch them do it, it it isn't really i guess coordinated if you want to call it that yeah they they definitely don't look like they're they're designed to do it necessarily but they seem to manage, so they're still around, sure. so they seem to ma- manage it. Nice. I guess a lot of the mammals that I was imagining when I think of New Zealand are are mostly agricultural animals. Oh, so yeah. like livestock. Yeah, yeah. Sheep is usually what people think of, and we've got lots of that. Uh, lots of cows, lots of, lots of sheep, um, particularly merino is the big one here in New Zealand that's quite famous. But yeah, again, you know, they're all introduced species. They're all, right. um, you know, agricultural species, that kind of stuff. Um, and because of that, I don't really care about them. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> You're allowed to feel that way. <laughs> I mean, they're fine, you know, but that's, that's not what I deal with on a daily basis. The, the really cool stuff is the stuff that you can only find here in New Zealand, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, and that makes sense because, you know, being an island, it's such an isolated ecosystem, right? And over Mm. the thousands and thousands of years, evolution is just going to kind of go haywire with it, right? You're going to get some insane specialization. Pretty much. Well, although technically it's three main islands and a series of outlying islands. But yes, it is. We broke off uh, very, very early on. We used to be connected to Australia and Australia used to be connected to um, wider Gondwana land. And we were kind of one of the first land masses to kind of pull away from everyone else. And, you know, all those, uh, you know, animals that couldn't fly or anything like that, just, you know, that was it. Like you, they were stuck here basically. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we've been isolated for a significantly larger proportion of time than most of the world. Um, which, yeah, as you say, you know, you start to get mad specialization. You start to get a lot of flightless birds because there's no, um, ground dwelling mammalian predators to, to attack them and stuff. And you get, you know, uh, huge moa, which is a relation to the ostrich or the cassowary, you know, two meters tall, 230 kgs, uh, in weight. Yeah. And you get things like the harst eagle, which has got like something ridiculous, like a five or six meter wingspan or something. Which, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, those are now extinct. So, yes, yeah, so you get this, these really weird kind of animals. And you get, you know, as I said, you get things like kiwi, kakapo, um, yeah, all these really strange looking animals, which all, you know, they lose bits, gain bits, um, and all sorts of different stuff. 
Yeah, it's really, really weird. <laughs> but but it's also really, really interesting. So, like, before we talk about our specific animal for today, uh, if you'd like, just take a second to explain, like, how you got into, like, the conservation work that you do. Yeah. How, how did I get into that? <laughs> <laughs> kind of fell into it. I guess when I, it kind of started when I was at uni, I actually initially started and started doing at uni uh, genetics specifically. And I got to the end of my first year and decided that, hey, genetics is really hard. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm cut out for it. <laughs> so I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would, but I did this one paper in my second semester that was just animal biology. We just talked about animals all the time and like what their behavior is like and what their structure is like and what their physiology is like and all this other stuff. I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. I might just do that for the rest of my degree. <laughs> so, Oh my gosh, that is the dream. <laughs> so, yeah. So I just rejigged my degree so that instead of majoring in genetics, I was minoring in genetics, um, but I majored in zoology. So that's the other thing. I'm not just like, you know, talking through a hole in my head. I do actually kind of know what I'm talking about. <laughs> sure, yeah. Qu qualifications. It's not a great qualification, but it's a qualification. Uh <laughs> hey, I will give you this. It is more of a qualification than I have. So you've already got that up on me. <laughs> either of us, really. So yeah, either of us. <laughs> you've already you've already one upped both of us. <laughs> well, it's about to get worse. Um <laughs> So today, uh, so you had, you actually came up with the idea. Uh, well, so mm. I believe it was like a few months ago, we put out a call for animal requests and you had the idea of talking about the tuatara. Is this an acceptable mm -hmm. way to pronounce it, by the way? Tuatara? It is an acceptable way to pronounce it. It's not quite the technically correct way to pronounce it, but 99% of people will pronounce it that way and it is sufficient. Um, <laughs> It's passable. If I receive a passing score, <laughs> you did. It's 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 like a it's like an A minus, right? You would have got A plus if you got you know the rest of it in there, but it, you know it's pretty good. Well, C's get degrees, baby. So I'm <laughs> exactly. just gonna take what I can exactly. get. That's how I finish my degree. You had the idea of talking about this animal, and I m committed the crime pretty much immediately of identifying it as a lizard. You did, and it annoys me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was a it was a sin that I have repented. Um, so yeah, what I what I used to tell people is we don't use the L word when we're talking about Tuatara. <laughs> so I'm getting that right out of the way, right at the top. Not a lizard. Yeah, they are not a lizard. Um, so explain a little bit your like your relationship with this animal and like your sort of background yep. and experience with the Tuatara. Yeah, so not long after I finished I finished uni, um, of course, I was looking for a zoology-type job, um, and I found one working at an aquarium, um, which just so happened to be also looking after um, a variety of other animals, one of them being the tuatara. And so we had two species of tuatara, um, which was the Cook Strait and the Brothers Island tuatara, and that was part of my job, was to look after them, feed them. Uh, and pull them out and get people to touch them and talk about them and all that sort of stuff. And I did that for about two years. So I know you guys like, you know, explaining your sources and stuff. Um, unfortunately for this, my source will be me in my experience of two <laughs> years working with them. You are allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> as well as things like the Department of Conservation and that kind of stuff as well, um, which are all always a very reliable source. But um, Icing on the cake. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's just out of my brain, most of this stuff. That is completely 100% allowed 
and you are, you know what, this is about you. So you are good to go. Everything's about me. (laughs) (laughs) So for people who, like me apparently, (laughs) know like literally nothing about this animal because unfortunately it is something that I feel does not get a lot of the media coverage that some of the Mm -hmm. other, um, like you said, more like fluffy and adorable creators from Mm. New Zealand get. Can you take a second to kind of introduce this animal? Like how big are they and what do they look like? Okay. Um, So they are reptiles. um, So they do look reptilian and they do kind of a little look like crocodiles because crocodiles are their closest kind of relation. Oh. Okay. They don't, it's kind of hard to explain because like they don't really look like that. But if once you know that they are related to crocodiles, you can kind of go, mm, yeah, I kind of I see that, you know. <laughs> so they, they kind of look like crocodiles a little bit. So yeah, so they are um, uh, reptiles. They're just not lizards. And they're about ooh, 60 centimeters in length, which I think is like 20. I think that's 20 inches ish. Okay. I think, I think. It's like about like forearm plus hand length. Yeah, roughly. There's, so that's roughly the size of a of a, a fairly average adult sort of male is about that size. But they start out obviously very very small, you know, like you know millimeters. Um, so they they, they start Aww. out very very small and then grow quite large, but they grow quite slowly. Um, over time, it's because they. Well, as I guess we'll talk a little bit later, but they last, they live for a very, very long time. So they grow very, very slowly. So yeah, so they're not huge. Um, the ones that I used to look after would sit quite comfortably on my forearm, you know, from his head could be, yeah, his head would be about my elbow and his tail would reach about to probably about my palm, maybe a little bit longer. So they're not huge animals by any stretch of the imagination, but they're not necessarily small either, at least the adults. So they're just kind of a weird kind of reptile that has a lot of, they're very unassuming because they don't move a lot. And they're very famous for not moving a lot. Relatable. Me also. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so, yeah, so they're very, uh, very unassuming sort of animals, but there's a lot going on there that a lot of people don't know about, uh, kind of physiologically and that kind of stuff and reasons why they do certain things and that kind of stuff that really surprises a lot of people. I find that, you know, that there's just this weird looking reptile and then you tell them all the stuff and they go, Ooh, that's kind of neat. You know, <laughs> that is a perfect transition into our first category. Yep. That we, if this is your first time joining us on this podcast, we rate animals out of 10 in three categories. And our first category is effectiveness, which we define on our show as an animal's physical adaptations that let them do a good job of the things that they're trying to do. So, what would you give the tuatara for effectiveness? I'd probably give it, I'd rate it probably pretty high because essentially it needs to be effective at doing nothing. And it is very effective at doing nothing. Um, (laughs) I love that. uh, So I'd probably put it like an eight or a nine. uh, So quite, quite high up there. So this is kind of what I mean by these, these reasons, like these interesting reasons for why they do these sorts of things. And in the case of the reason why they don't move is because their main predator is birds of prey. Um, and birds of prey, quite famously, have very good eyesight. So you've got your hawks and your falcons and that sort of thing. You know, they're flying over the forest and they're looking down, looking for something to eat. Naturally, if you uh, move around, that's going to draw the eye. They're going to see you. They're more likely to see you and therefore you're more likely to get eaten. So if you sit still and you're all kind of green and camouflaged like the tuatara is, you're less likely to be seen and less likely to be eaten. 
So that's kind of why they do that. And that's why I think they're quite, you know, that's, that's extremely effective. You know, these guys have lasted, you know, a very, very long time, which is something I probably actually should have mentioned at the top is these guys are often called living fossils in the sense that they haven't evolved pretty much at all since uh, the time of the dinosaurs. Um, so they are pretty much as close as you'll get to an actual dinosaur. So they haven't really evolved at all. And that kind of hinders them as well, because with the whole not moving very much thing, that works in the sense that it's designed to combat very, very good eyesight. It's not very good at combating very, very good noses, which is what <laughs> things like stoats and rats use. Oh. Yeah. So they'll come along and they sniff out the the, the tuatara and the tuatara's just sitting there going, oh yeah, if I stay still, it'll be fine. Of course, the, the stoat's <laughs> like, well, I've, I've seen you now. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run up and grab you. Oh man! So they're not very good at that. And the other thing is, is that generally, if a tuatara feels kind of threatened, it'll just run straight into its burrow because they do burrow underground, and that's kind of where they live and keep their eggs oh, and wow. that kind of stuff. And that's really good against a bird because a bird's just gonna look in the hole and go, Nah, I'm not into that. No way. Whereas a stoat or a rat is just gonna go, Oh yes, sweet as I'm just follow you down. No worries. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Better than breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so the very effective, the thing is, you you find this a lot with uh, with New Zealand animals is they're very effective at the environment that they evolved in. They are not very effective with all of these new weird fandangly rats and stoats and possums and hedgehogs and everything else going on coming over because they just have no way to combat them so i still rate them highly because of that but yeah they're not very effective because of the because of the whole uh, against rats and, and stoats and that kind of stuff unfortunately i will give them that that is not their fault <laughs> yeah that's kind of that's kind of what i thought is like they're effective with what they were meant to do not with the situation that they're in now which is not natural, if you want to call it that. One of the other ways, actually, they stop from being able to basically be eaten by birds of prey is they've actually got a third eye in the center of their forehead. Whoa, hold on, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Whoa, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fact that you did not lead with that is, like, <laughs> has broken me. It's like me. the what? least interesting thing about them. <laughs> so... So in fairness, I do, I should put eye in quotation marks. It's not quite an eye, it's a photoreceptor. So it basically can only tell if light is there or not. You can't actually see out of it, essentially. So it's not strictly a third eye, it's it's a light detection thing, essentially. I can't detect any light out of the top of my head, so this is already more of an eye, more of a third eye than I have. I would say that this is cool because we, we've seen this in other animals like the horseshoe crab and I think also the praying mantis. But yeah. So I, the praying yeah. mantis had something similar that was like ocelli uh -huh. in a similar position, like on top of the head to see if it's mm. light or dark above them. But that's in praying mantises, right. right? Like that's very far removed from reptiles. Yeah. Hey there, post-production Ellen here. This third eye that's like a photoreceptor sort of thing, this is called a parietal eye. And I did a little bit of research after we recorded this episode, and I found out that this parietal eye is actually found in many species of lizards and amphibians like frogs. It's also present in sharks and lampreys. 
But what's really interesting is that it is absent in mammals as well as turtles, birds, and crocodilians. So I thought that was pretty weird and cool. Anyway, back to the episode. So yeah, so partially what that third kind of photoreceptor is for is uh, to detect, you know, birds, essentially. Because what it does is it detects UV light, specifically. So essentially light from the sun. Because they need that UV light to keep their bones nice and strong. So they'll use it to partially to, to know whether there is light in the area. And so they can go, oh, yeah, I'll sit here for a bit and get some nice UV light. And then they go, right, I've had enough. And then they move along and go, right, it's shady here. I'll sit here for a bit. But they also use it to detect whether a bird is coming. Because, of course, if a bird's bearing down on you, he's probably covering the sun. And you can go, oh, no, I need to run. And, you know, scrabble <laughs> down into your, into your burrow. So it's used partially for that as well. And the cool thing is you can actually see the eye when uh, the tuatara is very, very young. So it's actually like a little silver dot in the center of their forehead. And then it gets scaled over as they get a bit older. It's still there, but you just can't see it anymore. So, yeah, so that's a a weird thing that they do. You know, I've only ever seen them in pictures. But Mm -hmm. in pictures, it looks like they do kind of have some, like, tactical defense spikes on them. Does that happen with, like, the birds of prey? (laughs) Mm, I'm about to burst your bubble here. Oh, man. Those spikes, um, for starters, those spikes are actually what the uh, the tuatara is named after. So tuatara in te reo Māori, which is the Māori language, which is the language, Māori are the indigenous peoples of New Zealand. Tuatara actually means in Māori, uh, peaks on the back in reference to those spines wow so that's a that's your fun fact for the day <laughs> so the 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 spines again quote unquote spines they're not spines at all they look like they are hard pieces of bone coming kind of out of the back of the of the tuatara they're not they're actually just soft bits of skin you can actually run your finger down them um and they uh they just flatten they're, they're not harmful at all they're just for show. Wow. So you have yeah. deflated not only me, but the actual spines on the back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can just run your finger down them and it's not painful at all. Yeah. They're just bits of wow. skin, essentially. That, yeah. that is something that I'm really glad you told me because since the only exposure that I have to them and quite possibly will ever have to them is only seeing them in pictures. And I feel like that is something I would not have known if you had not explicitly told me that. <laughs> yeah. So they're, uh, it, it's something I used to get a lot because I pulled the tuatara out and people would be quite scared to touch and say oh no no you know they're just soft little bits of skin but particularly because they actually use those more so for the males when they're fighting each other um for competition for mates and that kind of thing the males will actually puff up those spines like kind of the the, just underneath it i can provide a picture as well if you want to put those in the show notes from one that i've taken but these big uh, they get this big sort of like ridge on their back. So it, in- it increases the spine size by like double or even triple to make themselves like bigger and scarier and that sort of thing for when they're fighting other male to a tada. And that kind of, I guess, if you want to call it perpetuates the myth, essentially that these spines are very, very hard and dangerous and that sort of thing. But they're, they're not at all. They're just, yeah, soft little bits of skin that don't really, don't really do anything except make them look scary, essentially. I bet they would be so mad to know that you are out here giving away all of their secrets and telling everybody that they're not actually as tough and scary as they look. Like they are they they probably are so hurt by your betrayal of the of the illusion that they've been constructing over thousands of years. The thing the thing is though that they are 
they are scary. They are quite tough just in other ways. So one of the things I used to have to tell people is do not put your finger in front of the tuatara because naturally it will bite you. And people were like, oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you, but you always get that one guy that goes, mm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm like, let, let me just finish. So you go, okay, that's fine. You want to stick your hand, finger in front of the tuatara and get bitten, that's fine. But let me finish talk. Let me finish telling you about what's going to happen. Because oh. what's going to happen is the tuatara has one row of teeth on the bottom and two rows of teeth on the top of its mouth. So you're going to have three rows of teeth chomping down on your finger. And the thing about hmm. that is that those teeth are serrated. Um, so they've got jaggedy edges on them. And what they're going to do is they're going to, say, they grab your finger. They're going to start grinding their their teeth. They're going to start moving their jaw to try and saw blade through your finger so that they can lop it off and, uh, you know, and eat it. And the problem with that is you're going <laughs> to have to... many things. <laughs> yeah, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. So the problem with that is that could happen for quite some time because that tuatara is not going to let go of you until it takes its next, next breath. And they can hold their breath for any upwards of half an hour to an hour. Uh, oh, no. So <laughs> you're going to be there a while. You're going to be in a reasonable amount of pain. And of course the guy goes, oh, well, that's fine. I'll just pull my finger out. And I go, actually, you're not allowed because... <laughs> And and or, or they'll say something like, "Oh, but you'll just you'll just take it off, right?" And I go, "Actually, no, uh, because tuatara were the first native species in New Zealand to be legally protected under New Zealand law. I am not allowed to force the tuatara to let go of you. Um, I can't force its jaws open. You can't even pull your finger out. You do just have to sit there and wait for it to let go of you. And you're probably going to scream and holler for me to pull it off. And I'm just going to not touch that with a ten foot pole because I do not want to find." <laughs> I love that the government is like, no, you legally have to face the repercussions of your actions. <laughs> I believe it's a it's a weird thing of you, you're not allowed to really like, you know, harm a tuatara and that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't think that they explicitly say if you get bitten, you're not allowed to touch them. But it is it is kind of a they're quite heavily legally protected. So. Yeah, so you've got to be a bit careful about that kind of stuff. And I'm just basically like, in fairness, I don't know how 100% true that is. I do know there, there is some sort of legal stuff around that. But I don't know like how much, what the punishment is or anything like that if you do get caught. Uh, but I was kind of like, you know what? I'm not willing to risk this. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you got to protect yourself as well. <laughs> and like, yeah. you give people fair warning. Like, hey, I'm going to do nothing to help you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was also partially like, look, if you're stupid enough to get bitten by uh, something that spends its entire day doing absolutely nothing, you kind of <laughs> deserve it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, mm. so um, since you mentioned that they live in a burrow, uh, that's a pretty good segue mm. into our next category, which is ingenuity. Um, so ingenuity, yeah. we define as behavioral adaptations that an animal has developed that kind of give it a sort of a competitive edge, maybe like maybe it's good at figuring things out. Some examples might be tool use or hunting strategies or cool stuff an animal does. So what would you give the tuatara for uh, ingenuity? I'm, I'm really of two minds of this, uh, cause on the one hand, some of the stuff that they do is quite good and some of the stuff that they do is really bad um 
like some of the stuff like they uh, adult male tuatara will they'll eat any young tuatara that they come across without discrimination they'll just go along huh young tuatara eat it they do, as I said, they don't make any discrimination between whether it's their own young or the young of some other male. That's not ideal. No, not ideal is a good way of putting it. Because <laughs> 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 the, the, the idea is right. If you can eat the young of another male, you can, you know, your chances of your young and your genes and, you, you know, your offspring and that kind of stuff being passed on increases. But of course, you don't know, you know, you can't go, you know, the adult tuatara can't go up to the young and go, hey, uh, who, who's your daddy? You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> so they just have to do it indiscriminately. And that does sometimes result in their own young getting eaten if they're not careful. So, you know, that's like a, like, I, I see the logic behind it. But it just, sometimes it backfires horribly. So... Yeah, maybe not the cleverest, um, like, long-term strategy. <laughs> no. <laughs> not hugely. But the thing is with Tuatara is they... I guess, like, this is another kind of behavioral thing as well, is that they don't breed all that often. And that's partially just because they are very, very long-lived. So they live for about 200, 250 years. Ish. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. We don't quite know how old they get because no one's really had one for long enough. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? But we estimate about 200, 250 years. Uh-huh. I was going to say, how old were the ones that you were uh, caring for? Uh, the ones that I looked after were, uh, the youngest ones were, I think, sort of 15-ish. Okay. Which has another interesting implication as well. But the... Brothers Island to Atara that I was looking after, the two males, they were about 30 years old. Wow. Yeah. And that's relatively young for a Tuatara. Like the oldest living Tuatara, um, who was Henry in the Invercargill Museum, or he was in the Invercargill Museum, he probably isn't anymore. He is about 120-ish years old. He's probably closer to 125 now. So yeah, huh. so they can get very, very old. So we know they at least get to the sort of over a century and then yeah we suspect they get yeah probably about double that i am floored (laughs) i'm so shook so this is some like okay so i know that tortoises for example can get Mm -hmm. like getting older than like 100 or maybe even 200 years old i don't know tortoise lifespan Mm. that well i'm sorry but that's the only animal no other than the greenland shark right which lives for like centuries and centuries and centuries right like the 400 i think that one yeah, it's like a s- ridiculous, but it's way too the- long. <laughs> That's you know what? Nothing though? was meant to be alive that long. <laughs> you know, I think that that shark had a great strategy because it survived for four hundred years by minding his own business. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> he stuck to himself and he made it four hundred years. But so, like, I- I've heard this like long-lived tendency in tortoises, mm. but I I didn't really know that like smaller reptiles could live that impressively long it's not to necessarily to do with like the size or anything like that i don't quite know about the gremlin shark but the common theme between of course tortoises and tuatara and most other long-lived species of this kind is that they don't do very much at all (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know they're always sitting around doing nothing they move very slowly usually so that causes you know internally they don't get all those diseases associated with with age 
you know, when you get old and that kind of stuff, they don't, uh, their cells don't decay and all that kind of stuff as mm. often. So, yeah, so it's, it's, um, doing less means you live longer. And of course, classically, you get the people in the tour group that go, oh, I don't, I'd sit on the couch all the time. That means I'm going to live ages, right? And I'm like, that is absolutely not how it works. Man. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh man! But of course, they're they're um they're because they're cold blooded. Um, you know, they their internal processes are also slowed down as well. So, for anyone thinking, "Hey, I don't do very much," that means I'll I'll live a while. Doesn't quite work for humans, unfortunately, because you internally regulate your temperature, which takes up a hell of a lot of energy and food and stuff and that is what is going to do you in. So, if you want to live a really long time, you got to figure out a way to turn that off. Which <laughs> no one has figured out yet. So <laughs> one of these days, <laughs> we're one working on days. it. We'll get our top scientists on it. <laughs> like you heard it here first. This is this is how we create immortality. This is- <laughs> <laughs> we just turn our internal regulation off. Listen, as the as the Earth gets warmer, we don't have to warm our own body temperature as much. <laughs> if it's always ninety eight point six degrees on the face of the Earth, then we don't have to warm our bodies. I'm also pretty sure that's not how it works. <laughs> but I don't know enough to be able to say no. <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh, I'm I'm very shook by uh quite a few things that I've learned so far. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we're not finished yet. There's a lot to go. There's oh so gosh. much more. There's so much more. All right, hit me. So um, one of the interesting things about kind of their breeding and stuff is it's really hard to breed them. Like, so hard to breed them. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, the males need to fight each other, uh, or they, they, they do fight each other to, to be able to secure a mate. Because what happens is the female will sit there and watch the males fight. And she won't basically breed with either of them until she is 100% sure that he is the right man. And so they, the males need to basically duke it out, and one of them needs to be winning more fights more often before she will mate with that male. And that's a real big problem, because these things can take a while. You know, Tuatara don't move much, they live for a very long time. It can be years, possibly even decades, before they actually the males actually, or one of them, ends up gaining the upper hand more often than not. So that's partially a quite a big problem. Christian had to win many, many fights for me. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Just down at the pub getting into bar fights. In a Coliseum style type of <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was gladiator style where I lined combatants up in arena and he had to best each one in hand-to-hand combat. He's like in the middle and you're like in like the, the box and he just looks at you and goes, are you not entertained? <laughs> and you're just like shaking your head like, no. Send in the, the lions. <laughs> Once more. <laughs> you got a few decades to go, honey. <laughs> so yeah, so they have to spend their time doing that. And then the, the problem with uh, the next stage is that the female might not actually breed for another sort of anywhere between sort of four to seven years-ish. Um, so that's quite a long time. Uh, oh, then when she does actually, you know, lay the eggs and the eggs hatch and stuff, and that's all good. The problem with the next generation is that it takes 20 years for them to get a gender. So for the first 20 years of their life, they are genderless. They don't have any sort of of the reproductive organs or anything like that. They are just genderless for the first 20 years of their life. And then roughly around the age of 20, they essentially go through erectile puberty i guess and then huh. they become a male or a female and that's a big problem because we really can't wait 20 years for, 
to be able to release that into the into the wild population and that kind of stuff. So that's like a really big problem. So it takes like a really long time to be able to breed to a tata, which is a huge issue. Yeah, because I know that like captive breeding is a lot of times a really important part of like a species survival mm-hmm. plan. So mm-hmm. <laughs> if if you have to be breeding them like multiple decades apart, then yeah. Uh, it's going to be slow going. That that just kind of multiplies the impact when they accidentally eat their own young. <laughs> like, wow, look at all the work that went into this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's the that's the thing as well. They have to they have to separate the young from, you know, after like the eggs are laid, like they take mm-hmm. them off the they usually take them off the the male or they'd move the male somewhere else. He's like, "Okay, he's just going to eat them." So, you know, like they have to move <laughs> the male. So it's like a real Yeah, it is a real problem. <laughs> gosh they're really not making it easy on you (laughs) no and this is the other issue is that they are you know they're they're quite severely endangered as well um in the particular the ones that i was looking after uh the cook straight to a tata are there's a i think it's about a hundred thousand it might not be that much it's no more than a hundred thousand uh left which is good but not great and the brothers island to a tata has about 400 left in the wild and the big problem with them is of those 400 only about 40 of them are females which is a really big problem because um as as i've put it in the past uh the females are the baby factories which is not a not a nice way of putting it but (laughs) they're they're the important ones they're the ones who you know uh, are essentially the limiting factor when it comes to their conservation because one male can breed with a whole bunch of females that's and that's fine you know and he can have all this offspring but a female can mate with as many males as she likes she's only going to have one clutch so you know they're the limiting factor so you need lots of them but with global warming and this sort of stuff going on we're getting more males being born than females and the reason for that is because tuatara are what is called temperature sex dependent which basically means their gender is defined by the temperature of the soil or the average temperature of the soil when the eggs are, are laid and because as i said we've got global warming and stuff we are getting higher temperatures more often, so more males are being born because males tend to be born above 20 degrees Celsius. Below that threshold, it usually is females. So yeah, it's a really big problem at the moment, particularly with those guys, but a lot of other reptiles in the world as well. And fun fact about that as well, this is one of the other things you'll find in a lot of uh, New Zealand animals, is we tend to do things that every other animal in the world does, but we do it backwards. So in the case of Tuatara, usually with lots of other, most other reptiles, that temperature sex dependency is higher temperatures give females, lower temperatures give males. But for Tuatara, as I just said, it is the other way around. So that's quite unusual for them. That is interesting. Like, is there any particular function for that? Like, does that correspond to, like, any sort of seasonal temperature changes? Or, like, Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Like, is there a reason for that, I guess? um, Probably. I don't know what it is, but probably. Sure. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Tuatara are one of these things that we, we do know lots about them, but we equally don't really know anything about them. Um, so it might be something that we don't actually know because with them kind of not doing much, their, um, you know, their generational time, the fact that they don't breed very often and they don't have kids very often, that kind of stuff means that we can't study them as much as we have with other things like rats, which, you know, they have kids 
every, every other week, nearly, you know. <laughs> Immediately, forever. <laughs> Immediately, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it's harder to study them and know stuff about them um, without, you know, just like observing them and doing tests and stuff because they just don't do anything. They live for a very long time and they just don't have kids very often. So like with things like like things like if you want to know what what gender a, a young tuatara is going to be pretty much the only surefire way to know is to cut them open and have a look but that unfortunately is fatal to the tuatara so it's that kind of stuff that's like there's not really any good ways of of assessing a lot of stuff oh which does remind me here's another great thing about the age that i didn't mention before is we don't as i said we don't quite know how old they get and the reason for that is because the typical way we would look out we would look up how old an animal is is by taking out one of its ear bones so typically what you do is you get a little uh, thing called an otolith uh, which is a tiny tiny little bone in the ears of reptiles and fish as well and what you do is you sand that little otolith down by the way that this bone is like mega tiny like it is not even a millimeter across oh it's really tiny what you gotta do is you gotta sand this little little odolith down and put it under a microscope and then realize you didn't do it properly so you keep sanding (laughs) and you put it under again you realize you're not quite there so you keep sanding if you hadn't guessed already i i know this because i've done it before uh with fish (laughs) (laughs) that is the voice of frustrated experience (laughs) yes that is the voice of an undergraduate who just wants the thing to work (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so you sand it down you put it under a microscope and what you should see is a bunch of rings and each of those rings just like a tree indicates a year so how many rings there are tells you how old the reptile or the fish is the problem with tuatara is they don't have ears so they don't have ear bones so you can't do it that way nothing is easy nothing is easy yeah so the other way that you might do it is if you took out the teeth and you chop the teeth in half and do the same sort of thing. You know, you sand it down, put it under the microscope and you should see some rings that will tell you how old the the animal is. The reason that this works in other animals is because those parts of the body grow at the same rate every year. They only grow, you know, say half a millimeter every year. They're always going to grow half a millimeter every year. So there's going to be no variation there. But... With the teeth of the tuatara, they aren't the same as teeth from other reptiles because other reptiles, like humans, you know, your teeth are sitting in your gums, right? They're not attached to the rest of your skeleton or your skull or your jaw or anything like that. But for the tuatara, they are. So basically the teeth are just protrusions of the lower jaw and the skull through the gums. So Mm. the problem with that is that the skull in general you know, will grow uh, at different rates depending on how much you're, get, how much you're feeding them and, and, you know, kind of what's going on in the environment and that kind of stuff. So it's not a good way of telling how old they are, unfortunately. So that's why we don't know how old they are is because no one, there's, no, there's really no way to tell. And we're basically just waiting for Henry to die uh, just to see how old he gets when he dies. Wow. Huh. It's like kind of morbid. And it sounds like he has no plans to do so anytime soon. <laughs> No, no, he's um he's he's pretty chipper actually. Um, they couldn't get him to breed for a long while, which was interesting because his enclosure actually the ceiling on his enclosure was like stopping UV light coming through. So he was feeling a bit poorly for a while, and they couldn't figure out why he wasn't breeding. 
And then they figured out, oh, it's because the ceiling is blocking all the UV light. So they ripped out all the ceiling, put new ceiling in, and away he went, and it was fine. It was just- Problem solved. (laughs) Yeah, it was really strange. So yeah, so that was a really weird thing with him. But yeah, he's not, um, yeah, he is not showing any any signs of slowing down. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's good news, right? Like, just the longer lived, that just means, like, more baby-making opportunities, I guess? (laughs) Exactly. But I don't believe he's one of the rare ones. I, if I remember rightly, he is a cook straight to a tata, which we're not really that concerned about. So which is like kind of annoying. <laughs> but- <laughs> so to go back to what you mentioned about them not mm. having ears, is mm-hmm. it the case that they just cannot hear sounds at all? Not quite. So what you will find is when you see pictures of Tuatara, you will see that they're more often than not lying on their bellies. And that's because that is how they are hearing out for things. It's because they feel the vibrations through their bellies or through their skin. So that if something's coming along or whatever, they can, you know, run away from it or whatever. Which doesn't obviously really work for birds. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you know that, that's how they kind of do it. So, yeah, so they'll actually feel the vibrations kind of through their skin. And what you'll find as well, part of that is that their skin is very, very thin and very, very soft and kind of leathery. It's not really hard and scaly like a... Um, say like a bearded dragon or a blue tongue lizard or like a snake it's not like that it's very soft and very kind of leathery so yeah so it's very kind of it's a, it's very very different to what you might expect yeah especially when you especially when you said that they're related to crocodiles i was expecting mm. that sort of rough like um yeah like skin with like the osteoderms and stuff like that all over mm. it yeah no it's it's nothing nothing like that at all which is really strange that always catches people out as well they always think it's going to feel yeah kind of kind of really hard and kind of scaly but yeah it feels kind of soft and leathery and that always quite surprises people and i remember someone uh when i was on a tour you know they had um it was a family you know and um i i, I put down the the tuatara to one of the kids and the kid sort of strokes it and goes oh it feels like grandma because the worst part is grandma was there so (laughs) what a power move (laughs) she she took it in her stride though she was she seemed pretty all right about it but um oof (laughs) yeah big oof but yeah that was quite funny that's something that like the soft thin like skin rather than having a hard scaly exterior like Mm. it's something that is meant for what they're doing which is picking up vibrations but probably doesn't Mm. like the trade-off is that it doesn't offer them very much protection yeah exactly but in saying that they, they don't tend to fight very often they only fight each other really you know if they if they're gonna if they they do have like a predator coming after them as i said they'll just run into their burrow because that is in the past what has been effective the only time that they're ever going to fight is other males and and even then you know they're not doing it to try and kill each other they're just doing it to establish dominance um so you will sometimes find if, if you see two males um in like an enclosure you know they might have a bit of blood and you know some gashes and stuff on them but it's all pretty pretty normal um, but I do remember a few people running out going, oh my God, you two are trying to kill each other. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and they're like, it's got, it's got all this blood and it's really bad. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll come, I'll come and have a look. And they're like really distressed. And they're like, they're distressed because I'm not distressed. And so <laughs> you're like, you like walk out and you go and have a look at them. And they got this blood along on their side and stuff. You know, one of them has like a big, like swollen lip um, and that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, it's fine. They're like, are you sure? And I'm like, look, if its intestines aren't hanging out, I'm not worried. 
<laughs> they're so, operating their own little fight club in their in their yeah. enclosure. So it's yeah, I was like, oh, I don't really care. But yeah, I was very lucky to see them to see them fight very occasionally, which was very very cool. I saw one of them actually. We had this log, of, uh, like a, a, a like a tree log. One of them was on the like under kind of next to it on the ground, and one of them was like on the tree log. And then the one on the tree log was like looking down. And then I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I wonder what's going to happen here. And I was about to walk away because Tuatara, what as I said, they don't do much, so their fights take all day to happen. So I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna see anything here. But just as I was about to walk away, the one on the log like jumps off, lands on the other one, like pins his head down with his like paw or his hand or whatever. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's cool. So <laughs> the drama. Yeah, I was really. I thought it was great, but I was really annoyed I didn't capture it on camera because it was really cool. So yeah, so the the fights do take like a really long time. It sounds like their whole life they're just living in slow motion. Like, they've just hit, like, yeah. like 0.5 speed on their whole life. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of the misconception about uh, Tuatara, is that they don't move fast. They can move fast. They can move very fast. You know, they can move fast if they're chasing, like, insects and stuff. Or if they're fighting each other, they'll move quite quickly. Because um, what they'll do when they're fighting is actually, instead of lying on their belly, they'll raise themselves up off the ground. Um, so they'll be standing on all four legs, um, you know, ready to swipe or bite or whatever. So they can actually move very, very fast if they want to. The thing is, they just don't want to very often. So <laughs> now I'm starting to see the parallels between this and the crocodilians. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the so the thing is, is more they're not uh, they're not slow. They're lazy. There's a very <laughs> subtle distinction there. You know. So yeah, I I'd say, I like to explain that they're they're lazy more than anything rather than being slow because if they want to if they want to get up off the couch and like you know have, go for a run they can it's just that they often don't selectively athletic exactly yeah <laughs> so our last rating category is aesthetics mm. which speaks for itself it's just how pretty and how aesthetically pleasing they are what do you give the tuatara yeah I, again i'm of two minds of this one because i know what some people will want me to say um of course you want me to say that they they look great and they look amazing and i do think they look great and look amazing um however in maori uh what say they call it uh maori kōrero which is like kind of stories and, and kind of myths and tales and stuff tuatara and in general reptiles and lizards and stuff are actually the descendants of i think it's punga i want to say it's punga uh, citation needed i didn't quite look this one up but essentially they are the descendants of the god of ugly things um what? So, <laughs> so the disrespect <laughs> Yeah, I feel inclined to give them a zero because <laughs> because just of that, they are traditionally thought of as being quite ugly. <laughs> it's canon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think they look really, really cool. You know, the heads are, you know, as I said, sort of quite crocodilian. Um, their spines are... You know, they, they, they look quite tough and then when they, when they're fighting, you know, they enlarge them and, and they look very, very cool and they, you know, lift themselves up off the ground and, and they got very nice long claws and they got nice tails as well, which do also grow back if they fall off. That's another oh. thing as well that they will, if they lose them, they will grow back to the, ta you know, and the tails look quite cool and quite beefy and quite strong and stuff. So I think they look really, really cool, but I guess out of, um, traditionally what they've been known as, I might just give them a zero. <laughs> 
cold. <laughs> Ice cold. <laughs> that's not me. That's not me. I'm just saying that's what that's what they've always been. You know, <laughs> but hundreds, you know, hundreds of years, people thought that they looked ugly. So you can't deny hundreds of years of people saying, you know what, that looks like trash. <laughs> <laughs> They're canonically garbage. Exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned their role in sort of traditional like mythology and lore. Mm. And I know that you, you have this animal in your logo for your cover art for your podcast. I do. Oh, I should, I should put... I should put Tui on my head, but I, I actually got a, um, I got a stuffed one for Christmas from my mum. Um, yeah, and so I did a poll on Twitter as to, you know, what should we, what should we name, name it, I guess, because we don't know what, you know, gender it is. So, uh, it is called Tui the Tuatara, um, Aww. which sits up and watches me record, um, all the time. Oh, I voted in that poll, and I think that's the name <laughs> I voted for. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get told off because I rigged it slightly. Um, oh it, and yeah well i did two polls the first one that i did um i put hans as an h-a-n-z which is the abbreviate or like the acronym for my podcast but that got the vote more often like that that's the one that won and i got convinced that that name was too german and not enough <laughs> to not enough new zealand so i was like okay so i went and did the I went and did the poll again, and that was the one that got selected. So uh, I know that's a it's a slightly contentious issue with some people. <laughs> I would like to say, for the record, that I am in support of the decision that you ultimately made. <laughs> I think I think Tui the Tuatara is better because it is um, gender neutral. Um, sure. Because you know, we, as I said, we don't know uh, what gender they're going to be until you know they're about twenty years old. So I thought, well, if it's a gender neutral one, then, you know, it can be a he or a she and it doesn't really matter. So, sure. you know. It's very good. So, um, you know, you mentioned their their role in mythology and mm. lore. So, um, I, you know what? We haven't mentioned this yet, but so you're you're in New Zealand yes. right now, and we are in Florida. So this is definitely the largest time zone gap I've ever spoken across. You can't get any more. You can't get any more distant than in New Zealand because we are we're we're right basically next to the dateline. So we are mm-hmm. as far in the future as you can get. <laughs> so you are 18 hours ahead of us correct so for us right now it is 9 p.m on a friday night even though Mm. for you it is what 3 p.m on a saturday on a saturday yeah so this is a huge time gap, but so we're we're getting close to time, but I still wanted to make sure that you had a chance to talk about so so first of all, like any sort of cultural significance that you want to like describe about like what the Tuatara means to like New Zealand culture. Obviously, uh Tuatara hold quite a high place of honor in New Zealand kind of conservation culture and that kind of stuff, uh, because they were the first species in New Zealand to be legally protected. Um so they're kind of a partially kind of a poster child for that kind of stuff and of course they are a a very special endemic species to us and you can't see them anywhere else in the world and that kind of thing so we're very you know they're they're kind of big in that way as well but in another sense like most other or pretty much all endemic species here in new zealand they are what we call taonga to um the maori people which is basically that the treasures essentially is what taonga kind of translates to you know they're very very precious and, and very, very highly valued and, and that kind of thing. So, so the thing with Tuatara and that kind of stuff is if you want to keep them, breed them, that kind of stuff, you don't just have to jump through holes through the government. You have to jump through holes of, um, iwi, which is the, the 
uh, name from like Maori tribes, essentially. So they have to give like approval and that kind of stuff as well. There's a, you know, there's more hoops to jump through than than just you know legal ones, essentially. So they hold a very very high place in um, kind of Maori culture and that kind of stuff. Just for that reason, there's not many of them left, and Maori obviously have a very very big vested interest in trying to keep them alive as well because they have. Um, a big part of their culture, um, you know, as I said, stretching back for a very, very long time, uh, because, you know, they have this kind of whole, you know, all these stories around them. Um, one of them is mentioned that, you know, descended from the God of Ugly Things. Uh, Tuatara are also said to be, um, messengers of, I think it's the God of Darkness. Mm. He, he's like the evil God of kind of the Maori kind of pantheon, if you want to call it that. I think it's Fiddle. Again, citation needed. I don't quite remember that one, but. Yeah, so they're kind of associated with, yeah, the god of darkness and kind of evil and that kind of stuff. I'm hearing goth icon. That's what I'm yeah, hearing. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is with um, kind of lizards and reptiles in general, they were used as a kind of indication of bad stuff, of evil. So if you saw like reptiles carved into trees, you know, when you're like walking through the forest and stuff, you'd know that, hey, maybe I shouldn't go there. That seems pretty bad. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> kind of stuff. Or you put them on um, like your houses if something was like the bad, something was happening in the house or whatever. But yeah, so they hold quite a high place in in Māori culture, as do you know a lot of endemic species with all of the stories and and that kind of thing with them as well. Just based on what you've told me, it sounds like you have a lot to be proud of. Like this is a really really interesting, cool animal that I'm really surprised isn't talked about more. Um, because just like the conversations that I've had with you, like over Twitter, is the only time I've ever heard of them. Right? Like I know we're all the way on the other side of the planet, but still, like you know, I've heard of like kia and kiwi, and but the fact that this was my first time ever like really learning about about this animal. I think it's surprising. And so I'm really excited to like share this. You know, I, I feel like I, I'm really excited for, you know, a lot of people to know more about this really cool animal. So I really appreciate that. Absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing all your insight with us. So take a quick minute to talk about your podcast. Yeah. Um, so I do a podcast and it's nothing like this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's usually pretty serious uh, <laughs> actually it's not that serious but uh, as i mentioned at the top of the episode i do the history of aotearoa new zealand uh which is a chronological and narrative history of new zealand um funny that and it's basically me talking about all things to do um with new zealand's history so at the moment we are covering in particular we are covering maori culture um so because we started uh before people arrived in new zealand um and we're going to go you know all the way up to 2000 i thought it was the best way to do that was to cover maori culture what they were doing before europeans arrived so the sort of things we are covering or we have covered are things like the social structure um things like what women what their life was like um weaving so that's with harakeke flax um carving you know carvings on um houses and and, and on um posts and things uh, and at the moment i am doing a uh series on uh, tāmoko, which is uh, tattoos. So, you know, Māori tattoos, face tattoos, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, what does that mean? Why do they do it? How do they do it? You know, that kind of thing. And we're also going to cover things like, uh, obviously, warfare, uh, food, uh, medicine, uh, music, all sorts of different stuff. And then, of course, we're going to move into Abel Tasman, James Cook, generally Europeans coming over, Treaty of Waitangi, New Zealand Wars, Musket Wars, World War One, World War Two, rudder, 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 everything else. 
So that's what I do, or at least most of my free time is, is doing a lot of that stuff and talking about that. So yeah, so that's, if, if you're anyway interested in what kind of what I've been talking about about here, particularly the kind of, I guess, cultural stuff that we talk a lot about that, at least at the moment, we are talking a lot about that kind of stuff. But I also do talk about uh, New Zealand's native animals as well. Um, I have done an episode on Tuatara. Um, so if any of the stuff that we've talked about here is of interest and you kind of want to know a bit more, um, there's probably some stuff I missed in here. So I do do an episode on it in my uh, show as well. Um, if you want to get a little bit extra from that as well. And I do, t- uh, I do Patreon only episodes, um, about New Zealand's animals as well. The only, the only one I've done so far is the hee hee, which is the stitch bird. <laughs> yeah, they're quite cool. And we're looking to do, um, the hoi ho, which is the yellow eyed penguin. And then probably after that, I'll do like the wetapunga, which is the, the giant wetter and all sorts of other different things. So, so yeah, so I've, it is being described as kind of a conservationist podcast in a sense, because I do put a bit of a conservation spin on it but also it is what has been described by one facebook user as unashamedly homegrown so <laughs> if you want to hear a kiwi <laughs> bloke just talk about new zealand history that's what i do <laughs> and for people who haven't seen it spelled out before by the way that mm-hmm. is a-o-t-e-a-r-o-a that's correct yeah if you search probably history of new zealand it'll probably come up as well in fairness i have not tested that so I don't know, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's it's reasonably straightforward to find uh, if you're looking on, yeah, like, you know, pretty much any podcast or anything like that. There's not a lot of people doing New Zealand history, probably only about three, four-ish podcasts, including myself, that are doing this subject. So, you know, there's not a lot out there. So it's reasonably straightforward to find me. Just look for Tui. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you've got, <laughs> if you're looking at the podcast, it's got the big Tuatara on it, that that's the one that you're looking for. Perfect. All right. Excellent. Great tie-in. Crossover <laughs> 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 event of the century. All right, Thomas. Well, it is super late where we are, so it is time for us to go get some dinner. But we deeply, deeply appreciate you taking this time to talk to us. This has been pretty eye-opening. I have learned a lot and really, really excited. <laughs> and this has just been a lot of fun. This has been a really cool conversation to have. So I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to us. Definitely. Thank you very much for having me. I very much enjoy coming on to talk about, you know, uh, conservation stuff and animals and all that sort of weird stuff. So, um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, thank you very much for, for having me. It's awesome. No problem. All right. We will talk to you later. Thank you so much. No worries. Cheers. Bye. 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 Bye.